Well, good morning again. Um, good. Before we get into, we're going to get into uh, into God's Word and talk about Revelation, uh, this particular church. But before we do, this has been a really bad week for this country, and um, you know I think I would be remiss if this wasn't addressed at least in some measure from the from the pulpit, and. Uh, it's really difficult to find exactly, you know, the words to, to really talk about what's happened because it's sort of all over the place. Um, but I think if I were to say anything about this and about the way we respond to these kinds of events, um, it would be this. And that is that we have got to stop as a people and even as individuals, in believing that Facebook and the Internet is the last and best source of information, and even cable news to some extent, is the last and best source of information on anything that happens in this country. I mean, you can go within minutes of one of these shootings, whether it's of a black person or a white person or a, a police officer, there's something on Facebook from one polarizing side or the other. And at that moment, there is no way that those individuals have anywhere close to the uh, amount of information that is needed to make any kind of a, a judgment, uh, That not that they even should be making a judgment. So I think first and foremost, that needs to stop. Secondly, we've got to stop believing that every time a black person gets shot, they deserved it in some way. And we've got to stop believing that all white cops are racist. Because this cuts both ways, right? Um, you know my heart on this issue. We've got it on the wall, that this is a church that believes wholeheartedly in diversity. And this is an issue that's affecting us all. And I think the biggest thing that you can do is engage in conversation about it. Because what happens when something like this occurs, our tendency is we're just going to shut down and we're, we're going to avoid the subject because it's an uncomfortable subject. It's a hard subject to talk about. There's so much emotion and, um, and feeling about this that you know, we think, well, maybe we're better off just not saying anything. Well, I think that's absolutely the wrong approach to take. And I think if you have the opportunity to talk about these things in whatever context, I think we're all better for doing that. I can remember when I was working on my, uh, my dissertation and I had you know, in mind this coming together of people from the church to have this conversation on race. And some of you were there. But I can remember sort of dreading it because I thought, first of all, well, nobody's going to come because this is a tough subject to talk about. And secondly, that it, you know, I, didn't, I had no idea where it was going to end up because the whole process, the thought process was this should just be an open time of conversation. 
and people can say whatever's on their heart or whatever they're feeling. And much to my surprise and ultimately my delight, it turned out to be the best session of all of them that we did. And I think people grew closer together as a result of that time because we heard each other's stories. You know, we heard stories from some of our black members about the fact that racism still very much exists in this country. And I think it surprised a lot of the, the whites that listened. And they were like, they, they were just, you could see it on their faces. They were stunned at what they, were, what they heard. And then I think it was, you know, it was illustrative to our black members to hear the, their white brothers and sisters' perspectives as well. And so this whole idea of conversation, of really, you know, of engaging this, don't run from it, but engage it where you can, um, is, is that, and, and I think prayer, you know. Prayer truly does solve everything, ultimately. And so, you know, my heart just breaks for all those who were victims of, of violence you know, this week and in the weeks, in, you know, in the past and even over the years, that every time something that like this happens, it just seems like it pulls us further and further apart. And we have got to fight against that happening. That's why conversation is so much, is so important. Because you and I can talk about something and we may not agree on every aspect of it, but because I've taken the time and, and whoever else has taken the time to engage in a discussion and to know one another's hearts more, it's going to be a lot more difficult to hate each other as a result of that. So um, at this time, I just want to pray briefly to, uh, about what's going on. And so, Father, Lord, we don't, we see all of these things happening and it just appears at times that our country is being torn limb from limb. From limb. And Father, we know there is injustice in our, in our judicial system, in our law enforcement system, but we also know that there can be justice and there can be righteousness there as well. So Father, first and foremost, help us to not make snap judgments about the events we see and hear about. Help us to seek out the truth and to try to see things from another perspective. Father, help us to not turn a blind eye when there truly is injustice. To seek your will for justice in that situation and that it be done. And Father, soften our hearts towards each other. Help us to not Help us to not judge each other on the basis of some outward appearance, whether that be skin color or physical orientation, <laughs> tattoos, piercings, whatever, Lord. Help us to seek the inner person, to know the person at a deeper level before we begin to form opinions. So, Father, I just offer all of these things to you. We pray for the grieving families of all who were uh, killed during this past week. Be with them, Lord, and comfort them in their grief. 
and we give you thanks and praise, knowing that as you stated at the very, in the very first book or chapter of the book of Revelation, that you are sovereign and you are in control, and ultimately that's all that matters. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, we're actually in chapter 3 now. Do you believe it? Yeah. Chapter 3. It's only taken us two or three months to get here. Uh, but, before we do that, we're going to sort of review a little bit about what we talked about last week at the end of chapter 2. And that was um, the portion of John's vision that involved the church at Thyatira. And so... Um, the big idea there, or the last big idea that we talked about, was the idea that Jesus is happy with this particular church uh, because they have trust in and they have love for God and because they're willing servants and because they, they persevere in the face of persecution that's, uh, that's going on there. And if you'll remember, it's primarily uh, involving the trade unions and their, their jobs and the fact that uh, many of them are excluded because of their, their, they won't bow and partake of the pagan rituals that are occurring uh, as part of their uh, membership in these unions. So he's very happy with them for that, but at the same time he's warned them, he warns them about listening to false teachers who are promoting these kinds of pagan practices. So that's really what the, the big point of his letter to Thyatira was. There were several insights that came out of that, uh, the first is that there's really only one whose opinion really matters, and that's God. And if you get right down to it, the, what everybody else thinks is not that important. It's God's opinion that matters. Um, second, uh, though we, it's easy to become tempted or enamored with the new and the exciting, that oftentimes what God is really after is the main and the plain, right? It's not the, the newest and bestest thing I realize bestest is not a word, okay, so <laughs> please refrain from. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, you know, that we, 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 we tend to chase after this new thing. We hear about some new movement somewhere or some new um, spiritual experience, and we, we, we want to go chasing after that. And to a certain extent, you know, that's not necessarily bad. But at the same time, what are we called to do? You know, we're called to, you know, read the scriptures. We're called to pray. We're called to do all those very basic things that have been part of the Christian tradition for thousands of years. They're not necessarily exciting, although they can be. Um, but that's what God is, you know, is asking for us to do, I think. And then finally, we need to make sure that we don't get burned by false teaching. You know, that we are taking everything back to Scripture and making sure that it lines up so that we're not, uh, we don't get ourselves in trouble with starting to run after something that's not really of God. So that was last week. So this week we're talking about Sardis, his portion of the letter to Sardis. And so we'll show our map again. And uh, as you can see, Sardis is about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira. And... Uh, about 50 miles inland from Ephesus and Smyrna. So that sort of locates it on the map for you. Um, in, the, in the 6th century BC, 
Sardis was the capital of the Lydian kingdom, and it was one of the wealthiest and most powerful cities in the entire ancient world. So this was a, this was a hopping place. Uh, now, eventually, it was captured by the Persians, then the Greeks, when Al Alexander the Great ruled through, and then finally the Romans. Okay, so a lot of turmoil that went on in this city. And then, in uh, AD 17, uh, this particular city was devastated by uh, a severe earthquake. I mean, it just really took it out. And so, at that point, they became very indebted to Rome because they had to turn to Rome to finance the reconstruction of the city. And so Rome loaned them the money, but that put them pretty much in Rome's debt. They did have, or they were trying to have, a fairly massive temple um, to the goddess Artemis. And it was to rival the one that we, remember there was one in Ephesus as well that we, we talked about, and it was supposed to rival that, but uh, they never finished it. Uh, Sardis also had a pretty thriving Jewish community uh, that had strong connections to the surrounding city. And um, there are some, there's some evidence that many Jews in this city held official Roman citizenship, which, if you'll remember, Paul had Roman citizenship, but that was pretty rare. It was very rare for a Jew to actually have Roman citizenship. And so uh, the fact that there was a lot of that here was, is definitely rare. And so they think that, based on some ex excavations that they have done at the city, that uh, probably around the 4th century AD, there was a, a Jewish synagogue that was right next to a Roman bathhouse and a gymnasium complex. And so, you know, it postdates the time of Revelation, certainly, but it does reveal that there was this deeply rooted relationship between the synagogue and the pagan society that had to have been present in the 1st century as well. And uh, because the church in Sardis was closely associated with the Jewish community, that they may as well have been very guilty of, of kind of falling into the whole pagan culture aspect of things. So that's kind of a preview. So we're, what we're going to do now is we're going to read through. It's just six verses. It's Revelation 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so let's, let's pick this apart a little bit and, and understand a little bit better what's, uh, what's being said here. 
So first of all, uh, John is saying, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, this is Jesus speaking as the sovereign Lord uh, who holds the seven spirits of God, or another way of saying that would be the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Um, and in this verse, and there are probably at least three or four others in the book of Revelation, John seems to draw on um, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 10, uh, to show that God's work is not done by human ability, but, but by his spirit. And so that passage in, in Zechariah is describing a menorah because it talks about the golden lampstand that has seven stems or whatever. And, and that is what we know in the word in Hebrew for, uh, for this, for lampstand, is menorah. Okay, And that's what we see is used in, in Jewish worship yet today. And that verse from Zechariah also contains a very well-known passage that talks about, that, that says that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so that whole idea of the, the spirit's power and the fact that it's God and not man that accomplishes these things. And this church in Sardis desperately needs to experience the reviving power of Jesus. And it's reminding us that it's only through Jesus and it's only his power and only his sovereignty that is made available through the Holy Spirit that can revive those who are on the verge of death. And, and this church is on the verge of death. And so we see in this next uh, part of the, 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 the uh, verses, Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. What does he mean by that? Well, you know, perhaps that this church was very fashionable and very popular in the community. Now, there's no evidence uh, that, you know, we've talked about these other churches, and they're, they're pretty much all experiencing persecution, right? You know, we saw examples of that in every other letter that we've looked at from these other churches. But there's no evidence in this letter at all that this church in Sardis is undergoing any kind of persecution. In fact, the evidence really points the other direction. That the church had almost totally compromised with the surrounding culture. And what appeared to be a very busy, busy seemingly fruitful and growing church was in fact dead. had a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And see, we should note that the death of Sardis meant, didn't necessarily mean that they didn't have enough youth activities or they didn't have enough fellowship meetings or whatever else you tend to put in there, which is the reason that most churches today are viewed as being dead. Well, this is a dead church. They don't have anything for the kids. It wasn't it. The church had become secularized. And so the fundamental worldview of the church was no different from the surrounding pagan culture. You know, I think it was a couple of Sundays ago that John asked the question in his message, are we a church? Are we a social club? Seems like Sardis was a social club. 
Sardis had completely come to terms with its pagan environment and just decided, well, we'll just fit in. And so what does Jesus tell them? He says, wake up. Some of you need to do that too. Wake up. <laughs> Strengthen what remains. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. You see, it's probably, you can imagine, they read this letter in the church in Sardis, and someone, some of them, believing that they're this vibrant, great church with all these wonderful programs and outreaches and all these things, probably were like, well, what the heck are you scolding us for? We haven't done anything. Exactly. That's precisely the problem. Sardis had works, but they were not completed. They were unfulfilled in God's eyes. In fact, that's probably why this church appeared to be alive. But it was a dead church because it experienced neither theological controversy or persecution. One author put it this way, content with mediocrity, lacking both the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, it was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. So you can imagine Satan going, you know, this church is really going along pretty well. I like the direction this is going in. I don't think I'm going to have to do anything at all there. I'm going to get a break on this one. We'll just leave it as it is. It looks great. It has a great reputation in the community, but it's dead. It's dead to God. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he issues five commandments in rapid-fire succession to try to snap them back to life. The first one he says is he says, wake up. Better yet, he could be saying, be watchful. It's the same command that Jesus uses so often in other end times contexts. He's telling the church, look, there's something wrong here. You need to realize what it is, and you need to do something about it. And this, this would have been especially meaningful to the folks in Sardis because on two separate occasions, they had been the victims of surprise attacks. Asleep at the wheel. And so those that are on the verge of some kind of a spiritual death need to be strengthened and supported, which was essentially his second command. Because while their deeds seem perfectly acceptable to them, they were coming up far short of God's standard. And so from God's perspective, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And then thirdly, they desperately need to remember what they have received and what they have heard already, which is the truth of faith that was taught by Jesus and passed down through his apostles. But he asks them to do even more than just simply remember or recall this. They've also got to keep the commandments, obey the commandments, and live out those truths. It's not just enough to hear. You come here every week, you hear. 
hopefully it's the truth every week. But the question is, do you then go back and do? It's got the, both of those components have got to be there. And then finally, if you're going to get this right, this is going to have to involve repentance. Which means I'm going to turn away from whatever it is, you know, whether it's a lack of effort or heresy or sin or, you know, whatever that thing may be. I'm going to repent. I'm turning away from it. And I'm now going to go after God. And after issuing these commands... Jesus sort of issues a threat. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Now, what is he saying here? Does he mean he's going to come steal things? Well, no. This is a fairly common use of this term throughout Scripture. It basically means he's coming back in judgment. If they're not going to change their ways, then he's going to come in judgment using this uh, description that's used elsewhere of coming like a thief. Now, I think it's important to point out that, you know, this threat of Jesus coming back in judgment against a, uh, uh, a local church or a nation or a group of nations, this, we're not talking about the second coming here. See, everybody is accessible to Jesus all the time. And whether it's a disobedient individual, a family, a church, a business, a society, or even a nation, all of those are liable to have Jesus come in judgment at any particular time. So we've got to change. We have to wake up. Now, it's not entirely negative. Sardis has got a few. He says in verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So there is this faithful few that have resisted this compromise that's going on, this moral and spiritual compromise that's so much a part of his church. And in the portrayal here, this idea of being, um, of compromising is sort of, pictured as a staining of one's clothes. And so these folks can anticipate walking with Jesus dressed in white. And in the, in the book of Revelation, white generally symbolizes all positive things, such like purity, holiness, victory, glory. And so in this context, their worthiness seems connected to their works. Specifically, their loyalty to Jesus and their refusal to be polluted by their pagan surroundings. So there's a few people there that haven't soiled their garments. A few that hadn't given in to the secularization of their, of their culture. And then verse 5, it says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Now, the statement of I will not erase his name from the book of life has been 
somewhat of a source of controversy for quite a while. Because this gets into that whole question, oops, what happened? There we go. Um, can a true Christian fall away? That's kind of what we're talking about here. Can you lose your salvation? All right. Three, uh, three answers, all of them wrong, um, can have been offered, I think, in response to this question. First of all, that those who have been truly saved by Christ's redemption can fall away and be lost forever. No. This position is absolutely and categorically denied by Scripture. The nature of the salvation provided by Christ is eternal, and our justification in God's sight is not based on our works, but on the perfect, finished righteousness and substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Okay? But, let's look at the other ones. Secondly, all those who have accepted Christ and consider themselves saved, no matter what they do afterwards, they cannot be damned. That's not right either. See, if you take this particular view, you sort of want man to be sovereign in choosing his salvation without any interference from God, okay? So I want to choose this. I don't want God to sort of do anything. However, as soon as they make that choice, you want the door of salvation to slam shut so that you can't get out. All right, I'm in. I can do anything I want because I'm in. So let me quote John Murray here. It is utterly, utterly wrong to say that a believer is secure quite irrespective of his subsequent life of sin and unfaithfulness. The truth is that the faith of Jesus Christ is always respective of the life of holiness and fidelity. The doctrine of perseverance is the doctrine that believers persevere. <laughs> it's not that hard. You've got to stay with it. You have to stay after it. That's what persevering means. It cannot be too strongly stressed that it is the perseverance of the saints. And that means that the saints, those united to Christ by the effective call of the Father and, the indwelt, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will persevere unto the end. If they persevere if they endure, if they continue to believe, everything is fine. It is not at all that they will be saved irrespective of their perseverance or their continuance, but that they will, be, that they will assuredly persevere. Consequently, the security that is theirs is inseparable from their perseverance. Okay, a lot of words there. Boil it down pretty simply. You've got to stay after it. You have to stay in pursuit of a relationship with Jesus. Do that, and you won't have anything to worry about. 
But as soon as you start to stray, then you do run the risk of getting outside of salvation. And then finally, everyone in the world is written in the book of life, but unbelievers are erased from it after they have passed the age of accountability. Okay, completely unsupported by the Bible. <laughs> you know, if someone offers you this particular thought, it's like, well, where do you find that in Scripture? Um, in fact, I, I thought this was kind of amusing. To quote one scholar, that this thought is right on the same level with the sentiment that every time a wee fairy blows its nose, a baby is born. <laughs> Didn't think a whole lot of it, obviously. So those who are in the book of life, i.e. those who are baptized church members professing Jesus and are thus counted as and treated as Christians must remain faithful to Jesus. If you get tangled up in heresy or immorality or even the secularization that really plagued Sardis, then you can be erased or written out of the book. But the Christian that overcomes these temptations, that you know, thus demonstrating that Christ has truly purchased you, that you are you belong to Jesus. You're in no no danger whatsoever. In fact, what's more, Jesus himself will confess your name before his Father and the angels, which is a very reassuring promise, given that there is no higher authority. Okay, so that's sort of the, some of the background or a little uh, exposition of some of these verses. Now, what does this really say to us, or what can we take from this going forward? I think, first of all, we need to understand that what matters most is not our religious reputation before human beings, but our standing before God, which is related to how we live. All right? In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing uh, to discern what had happened in another nautical tragedy. And in January of that year, in thick fog off the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. 41 sailors ultimately lost their lives in the frigid waters off the, of the Atlantic. While it was Osmond Berry, the captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for over five hours. During cross-examination, it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. This realization partly explains a heart-rending heart picture that was recorded by the Times. 
Later, the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly seamen are a moving reminder of the tra tragic consequences of misorientation. See, the reminder for us is that if it's left unattended and unadjusted, our eternal compass inevitably drifts away from God, which is our true north. <coughs> and our lives are going to drift in the direction dictated by our culture or by the approval of our friends or our co-workers or even our family. So it's important then that we don't assume that our compass is okay. But we have to diligently pursue constant recalibration through practicing spiritual disciplines. Prayer, Bible study, worship, church attendance, etc. Make sure your compass is pointed the right way. And secondly, for a sick and dying church to regain its health calls for specific action prescribed by Jesus and made effective by the Holy Spirit. There's a perfect example of this in the Old Testament, and it's the example of King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34. And it shows us what happens at, you know, when time after time, over a period of time, people abandon God's word. And so if you're not familiar with the story, <clears throat> the kings that, that preceded uh, King Josiah had allowed and even encouraged the worship of pagan idols and gods. They built altars and monuments to them. And they allowed the, the true temple of God to basically fall into disrepair. And so King Josiah comes along and he works to correct all this. He starts to destroy everything that is not of God. So he tears down all these altars and poles and uh, destroys idols and everything that is not of God. He goes about um, getting rid of and also begins work to actually restore the temple of God. And so as his workers are in the process of restoring this temple, they find the book of Moses, the book of the law that had been lost and no one was paying any attention to this anymore. And so now all of a sudden they find it. And so it's read to King Josiah. And so he gives this command. He says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. So they go to a, a female prophet named Huldah. And she tells Josiah that God is going to bring disaster on that place and, and upon all its people because of what they have allowed. But he will spare Josiah because he has been responsive and humble in his approach to the Lord. And so what Josiah did was exactly what Jesus is commanding the church in Sardis and us to do. 
first is, is you've got to wake up. Wake up to your situation. You may think you're awake, but I would challenge you to make sure you're awake. Is there something going on you know, in your life that you're sort of asleep to? That you sort of just keep at arm's length? And if so, you've got to wake up to it. You've got to, basically, you've got to own it, right? Own your own mess. Then you've got to begin to strengthen what little or however much faith is left in you. You have got to begin to really work in strengthening that. And, and not only is that what we talked about a minute ago in terms of the spiritual disciplines, but the third part of this is to remember, remembering the historic Christian faith. Okay, remembering all of these saints that have gone before us for thousands of years. And then you've got to embrace that. And really understand, you know, and this, is, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning, this idea of the main and the plain. That's what these saints were, were known for. Not necessarily these elaborate or excessive, you know, displays of faith, but you know, oftentimes it's just in that very basic, I just believe and I'm going to keep believing in spite of what's happening. And then, of course, if you're going in the wrong direction, you've got to repent or change direction and go the other way. And so a dying church or even a dying individual can certainly become healthy and whole once again if it or he or she does what the great physician recommends. And so finally, the big idea really for this particular um, set of verses, once again, Jesus is rebuking his church for the fact that they've compromised. <coughs> and the fact that that compromise has led to a spiritual death. But for those that didn't go along with this, he's very reassuring, and he's telling them that you, you know, heavenly citizenship is yours because you were faithful. That's what he's saying to us. Be faithful, and heavenly citizenship is yours too. <coughs> we're going to uh, enter in our, into our time of communion, which... Um, for those of you that are uh, new here or, or just here for today for the first time, we look upon this time as an opportunity to not only partake of communion, which is a great spiritual discipline to uh, practice, but also as a time for, uh, for God to come in and, uh, and to be God and to do whatever God wants or chooses to do. And so we really invite the Holy Spirit to come in in this, in this time. But I would like to say this. I know there, you know, there are, are many here, there are some here, who you know, will say, well, I, I just I want more of the Holy Spirit in this church. I want more of the Holy Spirit in this church. Well, let me explain something to you. The Holy Spirit's in you. 
if you want more of the Holy Spirit in this church, you've got to bring it. And I don't mean that necessarily in the athletic coaching term of this, you know, you've got to bring it. But you've got in you what you're wanting to experience here. And so you have to understand that if, if everyone would sort of come with that attitude and would bring that Holy Spirit that's in them, then I guarantee you amazing things will take place here. And we're going to talk more about worship in August when we get into it's chapter 4. But um, you know that idea of corporate worship is really key to this of worshiping together. And one of, the, one of the ways that we can worship together is in the taking of communion. And so what we want to do during this time is to be just to be very encouraging. First and foremost, this is a safe place, all right? If you, um, you know, if you feel like God is, is giving you a word for someone, it's okay to go and give that word. No one is going to come up and escort you out or is going to take you into a back room and uh, begin the Inquisition all over again. It's not going to happen, all right? This is a, we want to be open to what God's doing. And the only way to do that is to allow people to move in the Spirit in the way they feel like God is directing them. Does that mean that it's all going to be, you know, that everything that happens is right? Not necessarily. That's what myself and John and Mark are here for, that if someone starts to get a little bit outside, you know, what we sense is what God is doing, then, you know, we'll, we'll bring some correction to it, but we'll do it gently. But it's all right. We, you know, that's, that's okay. We don't, we can't learn, you know, you can't learn to write unless you actually practice. Now I'm coming up with a new analogy for this week. Yeah, last week it was the golf swing, right? Now we're talking about, well, I'm using writing. That just popped into my head. But you can't study cursive writing and then say, well, I've got that and never actually put a pen to paper. Does that make sense? All right, well, the same thing happens with trying to move within what God is doing until we are willing to uh, practice which is part of bringing the Holy Spirit, right? Then you're going to continue to lack and to look for everybody else to do what God is looking for you to do. 